Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. My name is Lynn McFadden from Endogastric Solutions, and thank you for joining us this evening for our consumer educational tip talk. Uh, this evening, we have the pleasure of having three of our uh, physicians from Western Wisconsin Health joining us this evening to share their expertise and how they manage reflux patients within their practice. So we're live here at Western Wisconsin Health, um, and I'll give you each a minute just to take a brief uh, introduction. So uh, Dr. Singh, I'd like to start with you, if you'd like to just tell the audience a little bit about you. Hi, I'm uh, Reggie Singh. I am a general surgeon here over at uh, Western Wisconsin Health, uh, and certainly been involved with anti-reflux surgery for many years uh, and in various aspects uh, we've been uh, adding different solutions to our anti-reflux program, uh, with TIF being uh, one of them. So, uh, and I think we've been finding quite a bit of success uh, with this surgical option, and uh, certainly want to educate the uh, community out there about uh, about this procedure. Wonderful, thank you, Dr. Singh. Uh, we'll move on to you, um, Dr. Shmay. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Dr. Chime. I'm a board certified uh, gastroenterologist working here at Western Wisconsin Health in Baldwin, Wisconsin. Um, originally trained in New York residency and fellowship and uh, moved out here three years ago. Um, and like Dr. Singh said, uh, we've been collaborating with trying to help manage um, reflux disease in this uh, part of the country. And it's been an exciting journey. Wonderful, thank you and welcome. And um, next we have Dr. Ade. Would you like to take a minute to introduce yourself as well? Hi there, uh, I'm Dr. Lakumbu Ade. I'm a board certified family medicine doctor uh, trained in the Fox Valley area. I had a very um, early interest in um, reflux management and also like endoscopic like uh, procedures. So I have some training in that regard to be able to like uh, help patients uh, who are struggling uh, with various conditions, with reflux being one of them. So I'm excited to be a part of this meeting today. Wonderful, thank you all and welcome to our talk this evening. Uh, we structure these to be highly educational, highly conversational. Um, so without further ado, we'll start kicking it off by just giving folks a, a general definition. What is, what is GERD exactly? So GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. 
So um, it is a condition where patients have symptoms uh, due to uh, excessive uh, acid reflux. So uh, in, uh, gastrointestinal content, like contents from the stomach, sometimes can go up into the chest and cause like, you know, symptoms uh, range, uh, ranging from uh, uh, heartburn, as patients who call it, to nausea, to like uh, abdominal discomfort. Uh, sometimes patients will present and they tell you they get burning in the chest. And they will tell you like, you know, it is more prominent after eating certain uh, foods. And typically before they present to come see us in clinic, they have done some dietary eliminations uh, uh, before they actually do present, you know, to be able to see what other interventions uh, could be uh, utilized to help with symptoms overall. Yes, excellent. Thank you. It's so true. There's such a, uh, a range of symptoms and how people could be feeling and what they're experiencing. Um, so, you know, the greatest message out there is not to delay getting checked and evaluated to really find out what is causing all those symptoms. Reflux might be at the crux of that. So thank you for that definition. Um, when folks are struggling um, and having those symptoms, um, how do they find out if they have if they have GERD? What's involved in the diagnostics? So, um, so um, just like um, we we had talked about, typically like uh, patients are going to come in with like uh, reflux reflux type symptoms, and uh, um, usually they they have tried like uh, over the counter like you know interventions. Uh, some of them will tell you, you know, I've tried uh, Prilosec, I've tried like, you know, uh, Renididine or like say, uh, Pepsi, as they, uh, or Pepsi or like, you know, similar medications. And also they uh, have tried some like, you know, dietary eliminations before presenting. Dr. Chimay, did you want to add something to that conversation as well? Yes. So um, I wanted to add on a little bit on the, def you know, on the presentation is the patients could also have symptoms that are kind of outside the upper GI tract realm. And we call them extraesophageal manifestations of GERD, where some patients might not have had brown, but presents with cough, or probably be sent from the ENT because um, they had a laryngoscope that showed some erythema over the vocal cords, or patients would describe regurgitation of content to the back of their throat, um, sometimes acid reflux can actually give patients dental caries or acid taste at the, you know, back of the throat or acid taste in the mouth. Um, you know, so that's one other way you could present besides what Dr. Day talked about regards to heartburn and chest pain uh, and the likes of it. For the diagnostic part of it, it's evolved over time. Um, historically, we used to depend on presentation to diagnose GERD. But now we're getting a little bit more objective in the way we diagnose this, particularly for the patients who have extraesophageal manifestations. And this is where the uh, pH studies come in. Um, so we used to have the wired pH where the patient goes home with a catheter through their nose for 24 hours. But now we're gravitating more towards the wireless version of what most patients know as a Bravo device which is a wireless sensor placed in the lower esophagus during endoscopy, and the patient goes on with a recording device. And over a 72 to 96 hour period, you can actually tell objectively how much acid reflux they have 
But also more interesting is you have the ability to determine if there's an association between the reflux and the symptoms. So that we can actually tell patients, particularly which symptoms might be due to acid, especially in patients who have those extraspheroidal manifestations like cough or you know, tickling in the back of the throat, we can actually help them to determine if this is something that needs another specialist like a pulmonologist or ENT to uh, get addressed or if this is something that will get addressed with anti-reflux control. Now, very importantly, uh, you know, when patients do come in, kind of if they have not had some of these testings, but the first one is we usually rely very heavily on upper endoscopy where we put a camera down into the esophagus, into the stomach, you know, looking for any inflammation in the esophagus, uh, looking for hiatal hernias, uh, those type of things that might be the underlying cause course, looking for any other issues that, that might be uh, present. Uh, additionally to the upper endoscopy, uh, sometimes, you know, I'll also add a uh, upper GI or a x-ray test where uh, people will swallow some dye uh, to also help uh, diagnose reflux too. So it's just in terms of the diagnostic workup. Um, yeah, so. All right. So, so just to add on to what Dr. Singh said, um, there are patients that will come in with an upper endoscopy and have some findings that define GERD. So if I do an endoscopy and patients have evidence of Barrett's esophagus or have a high-grade esophagitis, which is where there's evidence of burn max caused by the acid in the lower esophagus, uh, grade C or grade D, those patients might not necessarily need to have a bravo done. The bravo usually would help you in patients who have something we call non-erosive disease, where there's no evidence of acid damage. And again, particularly patients who have those extraspheroidal manifestations uh, to help you delineate if this is due to reflux or not. Wonderful. So the diagnostic tests are, there's your general diagnostic tests, and then there could be others depending on each individual and how they're presenting. Uh, so thank you for explaining those tests. That's often an area where patients um, you know, might not understand what each test entails and um, why each test is being ordered. So thank you for that description. Uh, once they have that diagnosis of GERD, um, how, do you, how do you each manage those patients uh, in your practice? And um, Dr. Aday, I'd love to start with you, uh, being that your family medicine, um, you probably see a lot of those patients in your practice each day. Um, so um, what do you do as far as once that patient is diagnosed with reflux? How do you manage those patients? And when do you start thinking about maybe sending them on to a specialist um, for additional care? So, I mean, I, I think it all depends on like, you know, um, the uh, degree of disease. So if a patient presents and like, you know, uh, you put them on a proton pump inhibitor, which is one of the... Um, um, one of the highly utilized like medications for management of GERD. If at a low dose, the patient tells you, you know what, I have adequate symptom control. And uh, if they are presenting and they've had an endoscopy from an outside facility and there is no like, you know, evidence of uh, reflux esophagitis, which is like, you know, significant inflammation, irritation of the esophagus or other like, you know, complications from long-term like uh, reflux. Uh, be it Barrett's esophagus, which could be a pre-malignant uh, lesion, you feel like for that that patient is relatively low profile. So in that situation, you can present options to them and tell them, you know, we can continue to um, monitor symptoms 
on this low dose of like, you know, a potent pump inhibitor. And for uh, some patients, some subset of patients that is adequate for them. But some patients, no matter what you put them on in terms of medications, they still continue to struggle with symptoms. And in that situation, like uh, those are the patients that are going to move on to getting the uh, Bravo studies done just to see like what uh, extent of reflux they have and what interventions could be utilized to help them overall. Excellent. Because we hear that patients often will stay in that cycle of medication management, and it's often not uh, really helping them. We hear, too, that reflux is a mechanical condition that often um, requires um, intervention. So once you send them off to um, a specialist or um, talk to them about uh, procedural intervention after they've exhausted the lifestyle modifications and medications, um, Dr. Chimay, would you like to take it from there? And then once you see those folks from the primary care or the or family medicine physician, what do you typically do and how do you manage them in your in your practice? Yeah, so you touched a little bit on um, the two key points, um, which is the lifestyle modifications and then the medications. I always try to make sure that the patients understand um, what role those play, you know, things like avoiding trigger foods, you know, try not to lay down for three hours after eating, um, particularly, you know, dinner and stuff. Um, I tell patients try and lay down on the left side because that's, it's more protective for reflux. And medications, I kind of go over with them, what strength they're on, um, the timing they're taking it. Um, some patients might uh, come to you saying that they're taking high dose of omeprazole and it ends up they're taking it at bedtime when it's better in the morning. And just switching around some of those lifestyle medications might help. But there are some patients that would need the next stage. Most patients come to me when either they've been on these medications for several years and they want to get off it, or the primary care has been escalating the medications and patients are still symptomatic. Sure. And one of the talks that I have with them is that there is something called non-acid reflux, right? So all we're doing with the medications is trying to control the acidic components. But if patients are having bile reflux or reflux of you know, digestive pepsin, those patients, no matter how much escalation you have with the omeprazole, would still be symptomatic. And those are the patients I start to let them know that, you know, because this is a structure, could be a structural disease, particularly if the endoscopy should hide a hernia, if the valve you know, has a heel grade two, three, or four regardless of the acid suppression, they might need those structural aspects to be addressed. And that's where the surgical you know, options you know, come in, uh, of which, you know, uh, based on what we're talking um, today, the TIF procedure is something that I also kind of let them know that this is the new kid on the block and these are what the pros you know, advantages and all that is, especially patients of mine who come in with trouble swallowing and mm -hmm. having reflux at the same time, because over time, chronic reflux could actually cause weakness of the visual muscles. And you know, you're worried that if you go ahead to fix those structural reasons for reflux, the dysphagia or difficulty swallowing might get worse. And I think this is where Dr. Seng will probably come in to give us more in-depth uh, information on what the TIF procedure is. But this is one of the benefits that I actually highlight to the patients, and which is also very interesting to me how TIF makes a difference when it comes to the rest of the anti-reflux surgeries. 
Right, excellent. And so uh, we we brought up the TIF procedure. Uh, we did talk about medication management. We talked about lifestyle uh, modifications. And when we talk about procedural inter interventions, uh, one of those is the TIF procedure. And uh, the TIF procedures, it's uh, transoral incisionless fundoplication, uh, one of the many interventions out there to help treat folks with reflux. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how how and when you you um, introduce the TIF procedure um, and and uh, in what patients do you typically start those discussions? I guess at what point I'm I'm asking. Yeah, so the point I do is usually when I'm sure they've um, optimized lifestyle change as much as possible and also kind of adhering to the medications and taking at the right pace. And then I also try to figure out if there's any component of dysphagia with the patients because this kind of helps me to pre-select. And during the endoscopy is how much of hydrohernia hernia they have, uh, what the valve looks like. Um, so that helps me to determine who would benefit most from the TIF procedure. So at that point, I let the patients know that surgery sometimes for reflux is not really the last option. There are patients who it comes in earlier in the course of treatment and not have you develop the long-term effects of acid reflux like Barrett's or esophagitis before we say, let's go ahead and do surgery. So in those patients who have had chronic reflux and are having some issues with medication management, and I'm convinced that they've optimized lifestyle and also doing the medications the right way, I start to you know, prime them with that discussion that you know, at some point you might have to have this surgically corrected. Absolutely. And Dr. Singh, would you like to talk about then uh, the surgical intervention part in treating these reflux patients? Sure. So, um, you know, over the last several years, uh, been doing quite a bit of anti-reflux surgery. Uh, when we do see patients, they've usually, uh, number one, have been on quite a bit of medication and they're failing it either due to ongoing reflux issues with, or complaining of heartburn, complaining of main, the, my biggest issue, uh, patient who has uh, failure of medical therapy is regurgitation where uh, gastric contents are still coming back up into the, uh, into the esophagus or even up to the back of the throat because in its form, this is really a mechanical issue and we, we can't control that with medications. Sure. Uh, very importantly, uh, a lot of times, though, some of these folks have not really maximized their lifestyle changes. So very importantly, when they do meet with me, you know, we kind of go over what they have done with uh, lifestyle modifications with number one being uh, weight loss. And so with current indications uh, for anti-reflux surgery, people really do have to have a BMI of uh, under 35. Uh, otherwise, really, the recommendations are to do bariatric surgery if they have not if they're not able to lose weight. So. So there is a little bit of separation of the type of patients we see right there. Um, almost all of the patients that I see have some component of a hernia. And although the TIF is transoral incisionless fundoplication, it's it's in in my mind, it's really has to be combined with a surgical procedure where we have to kind of get the fix the hiatal hernia. And the hiatal hernia is where the top portion of the stomach has now herniated above the diaphragm, thereby not really allowing the natural uh, valve mechanisms to work properly and that's just causing the reflux. So it's really a combination of fixing the hiatal hernia and then improving what we call the lower esophageal sphincter, which is the 
um, which is the valve at the end of esophagus that, that keeps things from refluxing or regurgitating back into the esophagus. And uh, there are many, there are several different techniques that have been uh, developed. The original one was called, is a Nissen fundification, it's still a very commonly used uh, procedure. Uh, there's, um, for some folks who don't qualify for a, uh, a Nissen, a more of a partial wrap where we're surgically uh, improving the val uh, valve around the end of the esophagus. Uh, those are also there. Uh, there are some other mechanical devices, and then TIF has been around for quite a while. Um, but the incisionless portion is initially it was tried to repair the valve mechanism by just but by not repairing the hernia. I, I don't think it's as good of a repair, and I think most people again about probably ninety plus percent of people have some type of hiatal hernia component. So surgically. We end up uh, either laparoscopically or at Western Wisconsin, we do a robotic approach where we go transabdominally, so in, uh, through several small incisions uh, into the abdominal cavity, uh, bring the stomach back down into the uh, into the abdominal cavity, and then repair the hernia in the diaphragm uh, by with stitches, uh, and then we perform the TIF um, or or any other procedure depending on what is best for the patient, uh, we will uh, uh, then improve the, the structure of the valve so they don't get those uh, the reflux issues. Excellent. So there's two procedures going on. You're saying approximately 90% of the time with folks who have both reflux and uh, a higher hernia that also needs a repair uh, in order to keep everything intact and struct structurally sound, if you will. Exactly. Well, thank you for that explanation. Not everyone realizes that a hernia could really exacerbate uh, reflux and those symptoms and uh, just understanding how that happens is um, a great baseline for patients to, to have and understand. Um, Dr. Day or Dr. Chimay, is there anything you'd like to add to um, Dr. what Dr. Uh, Singh just presented? So, um... I would say like uh, the subset of patients that have gone through this uh, um, anti-reflux uh, surgery with uh, at Western Wisconsin Health, like the, we have a great uh, success story. Uh, a lot of the patients are able to like uh, eat some of the foods that they could not tolerate before. A lot of them are able to like uh, come up their medications. Uh, they were dependent on before the uh, surgical procedure and it's a minimally invasive procedure. So you don't get uh, recovery time is not extensive. So patients worry a lot about that, you know, uh, from uh, a pain standpoint, from an economic standpoint. So we try to like, you know, let patients know it is a minimally uh, invasive, like, you know, procedure that we can do. And uh, we, uh, we can provide a lot of like uh, relief, relief for them. And those medications, uh, just like we talked about earlier, they are with some risk involved. Mm -hmm. So if patients have to be on like a long-term uh, medications for uh, control of acid reflux, uh, we normally would recommend like uh, vitamin D and calcium because osteoporosis, like, you know, bone health, uh, those medications could negatively like uh, impact the, the bones. So um, in addition to other risk involved. So it is like... Um, um, uh, an easy procedure to perform, which could be life-altering for a lot of patients. That's excellent to hear. Thank you for that feedback. 
um, it's always important for patients to hear other patients' stories and how, uh, you know, how they're doing post-procedurally and how their lives have changed. So um, it's exciting to hear that you're seeing such great outcomes. Um, Dr. Chimay, did you have anything to add to that as well? You know, you're all seeing this population quite regularly and seeing them for the TIF procedure and, and after. What are you hearing? Correct. So um, nine out of every 10 patients um, are able to get off the acid suppression medication within the first four weeks, usually. Um, and in the beginning, I had mentioned that one of the reasons the patients come to me is having been on these medications for 20, 30 years. You know, they're concerned about the risks of side effects or associations like Dr. Day pointed out and they want to get off the medication. So one thing they really want to know is how soon can I get off these medications? Mm -hmm. And most people can get off with medications in about four weeks. There are 10% will probably require a less amount than they did. So if they were doing probably like 40 twice a day, they might realize that they're better off with 20s, um, which again is a significant improvement because with all these medications, you want to stay on the lowest uh, possible dose. And another thing that the patients also kind of appreciate about the TIF is the ability to belch and throw up. Um, you know, some patients initial reluctance to have an anti-reflux procedure where they know someone who had maybe a nissen or something, and when they get the flu, they can't throw up, they're just gonna dry heave. Um, so because this is a 270 degree wrap, there's always that 90 degree that allows you to belch and throw up. Um, and also, like I said, with the dysphagia, is less of a uh, side effects with um, the tape. So those are the success uh, stories and the you know positive reviews that patients have given when it comes to using the tape. Thank you, and and thanks for pointing out those uh, potential outcomes. To uh, you know, every procedure has has an outcome. Um, not all are positive. So um, thanks for explaining that and mm -hmm. um, shedding some light on on uh, what you're hearing in your practice. Dr. Singh, um, what is what is recovery like? Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the post-procedure recovery? Sure. So um, I would say probably around 75% of their folks um, will go home the same day uh, for our procedure. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people will stay uh, in the hospital overnight, um, uh, either because of uh, mm -hmm. persistent nausea or pain and discomfort that uh, might need to be managed. Uh, with additional medications, but the vast majority are going home the same day. Uh, it is a fairly um, um, rigorous post-op course, mainly because of uh, we have a fairly uh, um, controlled amount of uh, food that folks can eat um, because of the way the procedure is done. Uh, we do ask people to, you know, be on clear liquids for the first week and then what we call full liquids and very slowly advance their diet to a more, um, to a more regular diet uh, over the, um, uh, over a period of uh, 30 days. Uh, but nevertheless, they uh, still have to eat smaller meals more frequently to avoid problems with nausea and vomiting in the long run um, that can possibly affect both the TIF repair or even the hiatal hernia repair. Sure. Um, the amount of lifting uh, is certainly very controlled over the first eight weeks. We really ask people not to do much lifting uh, beyond 20 to 30 pounds. And, uh, and after that, uh, they can certainly start going back up. But um, um, 
I think in terms of what the average person feels is that usually after the first seven to 10 days, they're kind of back to most of their normal activities, except for the diet, which, you know, it's very prescribed. Um, pain is, um, most people don't need narcotics for more than a day or two, uh, if that, and are managed then uh, well with, uh, with anti-inflammatories or even just regular Tylenol. They're back to work usually within seven to 10 days and um, um, driving within a few days. So it's a fairly easy recovery. I think the most difficult part is certainly the diet for, for about a month. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, it's like everything else, it's baby steps. You gotta give it time to heal and uh, you gotta be gentle on yourself for a little while after. But um, we talked to a lot of patients who say the diet is quite tolerable. It's just thinking about your food in a different consistency for the first uh, the first go. Uh, so a lot of pureed, a lot of uh, very, you know, liquid consistency. So um, thank you for that description. And, and do either of you have anything else you'd like to add to that, to the recovery and what you're seeing in your patients? Yeah, I do want to mention, you know, the folks that, um, you know, I usually see them back <laughs> two weeks and six weeks. And um, we do continue, as Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Schmidt was saying, we do continue the acid suppression for four weeks to kind of let the areas where we've uh, operated on heal. Uh, but um, the improvement in regurgitative symptoms is is really just uh, night and day. Um, people come and say, you know, I don't have anything coming up. I'm not coughing. I'm sleeping better. I think those are are just um, are really great stories to hear. So um, uh, we've had a really good success with that. That's excellent. We're so glad to hear that. And it's so it's wonderful to hear your patients happy. They come to you unhappy and go through this journey uh, to find that their lives have changed for the better. So uh, we all love hearing that, especially you. This is your, your life work. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, to close us out this evening, I know we, we typically when we talk about reflux and GERD, there's two very prominent uh, national health care observances that take place each year. One of them is GERD Awareness Week, and that falls in November, right around Thanksgiving. So uh, to the earlier discussion about diet and foods being uh, something that can exacerbate reflux, um, we hear wine and chocolate and overindulgence. So it's, um, it's appropriate that GERD Awareness Week it reoccurs each year at uh, over the week of Thanksgiving. Um, the other one is Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month. Um, we spoke a little bit about it, but um, every April, Esoph Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month is observed. And I'd love for you to tell folks about um, the correlation between reflux and potentially progressing into something more serious, and if that could potentially progress into cancer down the road. And give us your thoughts on that. Sure, I'll, I'll chime in at this point. So um, there are generally two types of cancers you can find in the esophagus, and that's based on what kind of cells they are arising from. Um, so there's the squamous cell and something called the adenocarcinoma. Mm -hmm. The incidence of adenocarcinoma at this point has overtaken that of squamous, uh, which used to be predominant in the past. And we think it's because of the increasing incidence of reflux. And why do I say that? It's almost universally the adenocarcinoma comes, arises from barrettes. 
Now, Barrett's is something you find in the lower esophagus in patients who have had chronic reflux. Now, people hear the, you know, the word Barrett's just to go a little bit into what it means. So what I tell my patients is that it's normal cells in an abnormal location. So they're intestinal cells, but now they're found in the esophagus. The reason why the body does that is the intestinal cells are well adapted to cope with the effects of reflux because they always get acid from the stomach. But the problem with that is when cells migrate that way or appear in a different location, the cancer check mechanism does not move with them. So the esophageal cells have a specific cancer check mechanism that keeps the squamous cells in check. But once they switch and become intestinal cells, then there's that increased risk that they could switch to something called dysplasia and then eventually become esophageal cancer. The problem with esophageal cancer is similar to pancreatic cancer. By the time you're symptomatic, it's late. And also there's a lot of blood supply in that area. So spread is usually early. So this is a kind of the cancer where you wanna find it when it's a precancerous lesion and not when patients have become symptomatic with weight loss or trouble swallowing and things like that. So one of the things we're trying to do here at Western Wisconsin Health is to build a good Barrett's program. And what that starts with is trying to identify patients who are at risk of Barrett's and then have them do at least a one-time operator endoscopy to find those Barrett cells. Because if they're present, then we become the cancer check mechanism. And by that, I mean that the patients get into a surveillance program where they get an endoscopy every three to five years. And once we pick up that early sign of dysplasia, then we have to have the Barrett cells eradicated to prevent them from progressing to esophageal cancer. So part of the awareness of esophageal cancer is actually letting patients know that we can actually identify when it's precancerous lesions and then keep an eye on it to make sure that it doesn't progress to esophageal cancer. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for that. And and just encouraging folks, it's just the, the consistent message is don't delay if you're symptomatic or you're feeling the, some of the symptoms, atypical or typical, see your doctor, um, get it evaluated and see, you know, what is at the crux and um, what your treatment plan may entail. But being in your, um, your hands and your care is step one. Uh, so thank you for, for that. Um, Dr. Singh, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, kind of following up with uh, Dr. Chimay. If, uh, you know, most of the medications, especially the Prilosec, um, they're, they're over the counter now, uh, have become so common. Uh, I think people forget that they really are indicated for a very short course of time, um, at least if you haven't seen a physician. Uh, so if you're self-medicating and self-diagnosing and saying, all right, well, I'm having issues, but if after a period of four to six weeks, medications have not helped and you have problems with swallowing and um, or even, you know, as, as Dr. Chimay said, weight loss, those are really important symptoms to have uh, looked at uh, or if you're failing therapy uh, to have looked at. So um, sometimes I think we think that just because it's over the counter, we can just continue to take these medications. But if, if, if you have not had significant improvement in symptoms over a period of um, four to six weeks, then I think it's time to, uh, to seek help. Um, 
it doesn't mean that you're going to have surgery, but it does mean you might need further evaluation of what's going on. Excellent. Dr. Aday, anything to add there too? Yeah, I feel like uh, being in family medicine, um, the biggest thing is all about prevention. Uh, that's why we encourage patients to get like uh, even colon cancer screening because you want to like uh, take out these polyps before they become uh, cancerous. Uh, also, with regards to like uh, the esophageal cancer, especially like, you know, the adenocarcinoma, uh, if patients have Barrett's, you want to catch it early and treat it or maybe even a best case scenario, prevent them from developing the Barrett's to begin with. You know, so um, just like uh, Dr. Singh and Dr. Chime have said, uh, symptoms should not be ignored. If patients have symptoms, they should seek help and uh, just try and have a healthcare professional, like evaluate them to see what the best course of action is going to be in terms of like, you know, just preventing them from uh, um, getting cancer. Because when you get to that stage, uh, treatment, is usually like much more difficult. And for some patients, it's not even an option. Yeah, thank you for that. I think um, on that note, I think um, one, I wanna thank each of you for your passion and your dedication uh, to collectively treating these reflux patients and uh, the various roles you play in that care pathway. Thank you for being on this evening and sharing your expertise and really diving into um, this disease with our with those who, who join on the segment to uh, listen and learn. So thank you again for being here. Um, if you are in uh, Baldwin, Wisconsin, um, you can find one of these wonderful physicians uh, to, uh, if, you, if you have reflux and you're looking to get evaluated or go for a consult, um, these physicians are here in Baldwin, Wisconsin at Western Wisconsin Health. Otherwise, and I do, oh, do want to kind of uh, just, I think, the last uh, a point that, you know, I, I one of the few places that we uh, collaborate uh, very closely with primary care, GI and and surgery, I, I, you know, we all try and work together as a team uh, to make sure that everyone's kind of getting the best care. A lot of times things are very fragmented, but uh, Western Wisconsin has really done a great job in, in, you know, giving us a team approach and giving us all the tools that we need to kind of provide all the, uh, both the diagnostic and therapeutic care uh, very low, you know, locally. I think that was a great call out. And uh, that, that care collaboration is significant for patients and the team that you've developed here is, is, uh, is pretty wonderful and they're in great hands. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. If you are here in uh, Baldwin, Wisconsin, again, you can look to Western Wisconsin Health uh, for any of our physicians who are here today. Otherwise we have a um, physician finder tool on girdhelp.com. On that site, there's also uh, a mobile app application that you can download. Um, there's instructions there. So if you're if you're struggling, you're trying to learn more, that app is really helpful. So um, we thank you all for joining. Thank you for tuning in this evening. And uh, we hope you walked away with some additional knowledge. Please share it with your friends and families as well. And uh, please tune in next time. Again, thank you everyone for joining. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit girdhelp.com 
or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning into another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, GERD free.